You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. University. I am Professor David Kirk Philp, along with Dr. Esteban. Marconi Emeritus. That is you. And we are here and we're going to have a great day uh, speaking with a great fellow, Josh Wint. And we're going to get into all that is Josh in just a moment. But Dr. Esteban, it's been a while, but it's great to have you back and have me back. And uh, so, of course. Which, yes, it was summertime and now it's still summertime. But uh, why don't we real quickly give thanks? Sure. Okay. We're going to first give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne Bruno Inc. at White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent Kiss, Zach Brown, and Tima Likes Music. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB CPA.com when you're ready. And we want to give thanks to Christine. Oi. Bay, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group. Christine has helped professionals all over the world manage their investments, plan after their retirement. When a person like you is thinking of building a bridge to your personal financial future, think about the Forefront Group and go to Christine at Forefront.com. Leave the last oil off for savings. As we always do and always will. Managing your band, 7th edition now. I mean, 7th edition out now has been out. It's tremendous. Do you agree, Dr. Esteban? Yes, very much so. Yes, there, I was leaping through it right before our interview. So um, it's, it's it still works. It's not broken. One final note, we should also mention Billboard, the magazine has also just ranked William Patterson University's music business program as one of the best in the world. Just got that email days ago. And so come to us. We're great. End of discussion. Yes. 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 So we now have a guest with us. The uh, He's actually a knight. Uh, he's English. His name is Josh Wint. And he has been knighted by the queen just a week ago. This is all true, right? Get a little closer to your mic, Dave. Okay. Uh, the queen knighted him just recently. So um, Dr. Stabon, why don't you do the intro? And why don't we begin? Well, Sure. Well, we have Josh here, who I met on the golf course, believe it or not, um, about a month ago, and didn't realize that he is a neighbor and a resident of Wayne, like Dave and me. 
So he's in the business in a variety of positions, but does not come from a background of music business education or getting a degree in the music business or actually going to university where I believe doesn't even have a degree in the music business. So like so many people, he wanted to do something different, I bet, than many other people that graduate. So Josh, you went to Penn State? I did. Well, first off, thank you for having me on here. I really appreciate it. I feel very privileged and grateful to be able to to speak with you. Um, but yeah, I went to Penn State. Proud, uh, proud Nittany Lion. Uh-huh. And did you do an internship at Penn State? I had a few internships. Um, not so many in music. It took me a few years to really find myself knowing that that's what I wanted to do. So I actually, my first internship was uh, with NBC Universal. Um, that was my sophomore year going into my junior year. Um, and then my next internship was with a sports agency where I would actually scout um, players in college that were going to potentially get drafted in the NFL, which was which was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So how'd you get the bug? That music was going to be it. So 2011, I studied abroad in Rome, Italy um, for four months. We're just walking around by the Vatican and we see a bunch of, you know, tour flyers. And I see this flyer, Paul Van Dyke, which I've heard that name before. Very, you know, famous DJ. Um, and from there, I just started traveling all throughout Europe, going to different dance, you know, electronic concerts. Um, and I got the bug, uh, the energy, the the liveliness, the people that were coming to the shows. It was just something that I've never seen before. Um and then once I got back from abroad, we we kind of really felt like we brought electronic music a little bit, you know, over to to this side of the world. I mean, it's been around for a while. Um, but once we got back from college, it was kind of just hit the ground running. You know, anything music related that I can get my hands on and get involved with, I did. Mm-hmm. And this was before you graduated or after you graduated? Before I graduated. So when I got back, um, I participated, started a music blog. Um, called College Rehab, which saying that out loud, I haven't said those words in in such a long time. Um, we started, it was really just electronic music, you know, based anything that we could find on SoundCloud before other people, you know, this is really before blogs were, you know, the, the forefront of how we even found new music, which is kind of dwindling down already. Um, but well, yeah, once I got back from from studying abroad, we started this blog and then from that, it was promoting shows, bringing people to the university, you know, being the the guy that was, you know, on the auxiliary cord at the parties. Um, like I said, anything that I can do music related and try to show people the things that I was listening to, I did. And what was your first thing that you believe got some traction? Well, I mean, right off the the first thing, Mike Posner, um, if you guys know who who that is, he had a, uh, like a mixtape called uh, Drug Dealer Girl. And that was my freshman year, actually. And there's something about his voice that was just so captivating. And to this day, the biggest thing for me is the tone of of, of someone's voice, something that can really stand out from someone else. Um, and yeah, the tone of his voice just was captivating. And throughout my four years at Penn State, my goal was to bring him 
to Penn State. I was not the one to bring him, but he did come. So I felt like I had some part in that. Um, but he was probably the first one. Um, and that, you asking that, that was so easy for me to give an answer. You mm. know, like I do that immediately. All right. So who was the first uh, industry gatekeeper that actually took you seriously? Oh, man. Um, I would probably CAA, to be honest with you. Um, I didn't even go there for for music. You know, I from for as long as I could remember, I wanted to be a sports agent. You know, I, I remember watching Arliss um, on HBO, Jerry Maguire um, as a kid. And there's something super captivating about that. I think just entertainment in general was something really captivating for me. I'm, you know, I'm an average Joe. I'm five foot seven, was never going to play in the NBA or in the major leagues or anything like that. So I thought, what well, was the next best thing to do? Let me work alongside these guys. Um, so, you know, my, my main goal was to get an interview with CAA. And then, you know, as I was graduating, I actually got an interview. I had to leave senior week at Penn State, drive all the way to New York, meet with HR, um, and sat down and I didn't get the job then, but the way that it works with CAA is your name is just in a pool of resumes because, you know, it's in and out, you know, you've got um, agent assistants coming in, coordinators coming in and out. So after my first year of my, the first job I got out of college, which was a spring break company where we would throw events in Mexico, which was still somewhat in the same lane. I had summers that were pretty free because the kids were not in school. Um, so I emailed the HR again and she put me back into the pool of, of resumes. And this time I got the job. Um, so CA was really the first ones to give me a start in terms of the entertainment business. A year into it, I had to sit down with my boss and tell her, I love you. You know, like I've loved working on all these, you know, sports athletes with you. It's been, you know, a great experience, but I need to get back into music. So, um, I actually left and went back to the first company I started, I was at. Ah, while you were at CAA, was there much interaction between sports and music? Not necessarily. There is a lot of crossover there. You know, um, if there are musicians that wanted to get, that are athletic, you know, like just for example, like Quavo from Migos is a really good basketball player. So essentially, like, you know, if you wanted to do that crossover, it was always a possibility. On my desk specifically, I always saw more like sports, like athletes doing alternative TV or doing some sort of like speaking engagement or some sort of like literary um, deal, but um, not, not entirely, but it was definitely like, it was, it was there and it was available. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I guess, how did you move into artist representation or artist management from basically an agency side or a side where you were actually almost a promoter trying to get, uh, whoever I can't remember to Penn state. Yeah. Um, so how did you get to artist representation? So when I was at CAA and I still talk to a lot of these, these guys and a lot of these guys are now, you know, in, in my, all of my friend group or all of my colleagues are, you know, you, you never know where they're going to wind up. You know, one day we're all going to be running this business and it's already happening. So I met one of my buddies who's now a big time agent at CAA. Um, I just saw him posting a bunch of stuff about, you know, the chain smokers at the time. And I was a big chain smokers fan, um, electronic duo. Um, and we just became really close, started going to a bunch of shows together. 
And then I just kind of felt that even if I were to switch over from the sports and alternative TV department to music, that I would have to kind of start over again. Um, and I felt that I didn't necessarily want to tour artists. I wanted to be on more of the creative side. So I decided to leave um, and I just dove right into management. It kind of wasn't even like a second guess. It was like, this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to be within the energy of 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 music, the shows, the branding, um, the everything. So I would probably say that's when I first realized that I wanted to get into management. Soon, soon thereafter, once I realized that I left, I went back to the spring break company, but also started like a little bit of a management business myself. Um, and then like a year later, I signed my first artist. Mm -hmm. Okay. So your first artist was whom? My first artist was Jared McFarlane, also known as Party Thieves, which is a trap producer, 808 hip hop, but in the electronic space, a trap producer. Um, really funny story with him and a little bit about him. He actually was a wide receiver for Army. Um, amazing athlete, so talented, so smart. Um, I came across him from Facebook. Uh, my buddy at CAA at the time, I saw that he followed. they followed each other. So I followed him. And he messaged me saying, you know, I don't know who you are, but, you know, so like, tell me a little bit more about yourself and, you know, would love to, to meet up. And we met up and, you know, the rest is history. We toured the world together. You know, we, I toured him in India, Asia, Australia, Europe, you name it, you name the continent besides, you know, Antarctica, he was there. All right. So why, why did he believe in you? Um, I think it just really, you know, in something that, stays true to this day is just like um, not even mine but my business partner too and the people we work with is our aura our energy being a good person I feel like it's not hard to do that you know and to really kind of just let your your actions meet your words and you know I didn't rush into it with him I didn't you know see him meet with him and say you know I want a piece of your business you know we formed a relationship you know as I feel like you know any artist manager a and r label should do you know you really need to know who you're getting into business with it's a relationship at the end of the day um so we probably stayed close for about four to six months um and then he sent me a record that i was like this one's going to change your life and it did and soon thereafter we we got into business together and we started working together at this company that was based in germany called golden ratio which those guys gave me my, uh, you know, one of my first starts too, which was, you know, and I'm super grateful for them. About half a year in, we decided to just go solo. And that's kind of where my whole career started, just trying to figure this out on my own. Um, so he gave me that start. And I, and I think it was just because we really met, we came from similar backgrounds, our families, you know, we have really strong family values. He's super pragmatic. He just saw that I was going to put in the work. Uh when you go, let's, let's take a, what year party thieves? Is this now 2013, 2014? When are we? Borderline met in 2013, started working together in 2014. Okay. So it's interesting because you talk about all the things you did. It was already from 2023, a completely different era because that was mm. still, there was still, uh, I guess we weren't as high on Spotify even yet. Spotify really didn't, you know, streaming didn't really take over till we'll call it 2015, 2016. Yeah. Uh, so that was still iTunes downloads and maybe some physical talk about um, then, and maybe you can, can compare it to now. 
Um, mm. What did you do back then in terms of we, we traveled everywhere but Antarctica, which has penguins and the Arctic does not have penguins. So that's another thing that we yeah. should discuss. I honestly, I honestly love that because streaming and everything that's going on right now is like, like I'm such a data guy, you know, I'm a finance major from Penn state. So numbers are just like my thing. I'm, I geek out over them. So back then, I mean, I found Jared party thieves on SoundCloud. That was like, that was where you found your artists. And I was super just blown away by how he was able to build his following at that time. It's like 10,000 followers and doing it himself. So when we first started working together, he had no music on Spotify, like all the music he had to put out. And I didn't even really know what it was. I just started putting his music on Spotify in 2015, like you had mentioned. Um, and at the time, you know, starting his profile and seeing that he already had 30,000 followers in there, which now fast forward to now, I'm much more of a followers guy on Spotify than I am. How many monthly listeners do you have? Because that fluctuates way too heavily, you know, based upon your, your release schedule. So we had so many followers already. I was like, okay, this is a really good start. So 2015, we started uploading his music and it really wasn't, it was a little bit of a, you know, a, I had to learn how to do that. I didn't really, it was like the wild, wild west. Even at the time, all of that was new to me. You know, all, all I knew was that I was going to work harder than everybody else. And I was going to figure out, figure it out as I did it. Um, but even fast forward through that in 2017, I started just uh, distributing records myself under my own imprint with uh, a JV at the orchard called black 17. Cause I just needed to learn more. I didn't really know much about how to get the songs onto Spotify or to any other streaming platform or even how to promote it. Um, so that whole process was super new. Um, but once you started to do it, you kind of really just got the hang of it. What would you say is different today, breaking an artist today versus nine years ago? Now it's just content. You know, now we've got TikTok, you know, now we've got Instagram reels and video content. You know, the biggest thing that we're working on right now with any artist is matching the song with a piece of content with the message behind it. Back then it was literally just, it, there was no algorithm really you know you just put a song out and it would find its way to you and it would just you know circulate and just grow and grow and grow you know now with what is it seventy five thousand uploads a day i think or sixty five thousand, it is really 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 hard to stand out from back then to now you know there are artists that were the soundcloud artists that now it doesn't even matter how they stream on spotify because they've built a legacy for themselves you know and that's how they that's how they were found um now it's just super super hard so now you have so many other things so many other boxes you have to check off before you even put out a song and there are so many artists that we've worked with in the past that just like think that they can throw up a song on a, on a dsp and that their whole lives are going to change without putting in the work and understanding what you need to do now in order to have a successful record mm -hmm. it's like it's like uh chemistry you know if you if you think about you know uh put in all these different ingredients and hopefully they bubble and bubble over, you know, in the beaker, you know, and you see stuff coming out and wow, it's going to explode because you have uh, you have your background in live or you have your background in CA CAA at an agency. Uh, so talk about so you have content, you have obviously the music, which is different from content. And then you have the live show as well. Uh, and then you're hoping for some other things. So what where is that mix for you? Um, what, what, do you, what do you think in terms of breaking an artist today? I, I think it's all it's 
it's different per genres and like i hate to say that because i think genres are are obsolete now you know people either like what they like you know that you know you see something on the inter internet you're you're looking at a piece of video and and listening to the songs so you're not even like necessarily saying oh that's what this genre is um so it's different like electronic artists are more on the on the ground like they're more of like live acts where you know it takes playing their songs out live to really help grow them you know definitely social content plays a part in it just to help feed you know feed their brand and their aesthetic as they put out music and as they tour more more for other artists like that we work with you know in the country space or the all country or pop space um you know if you're not hitting the live circuit yet because you're not ready or it's super expensive to tour with a band and all the other factors that you have coming in you really have to captivate that message that you have behind that song people need to feel what you're saying what you're singing um, they can see right through it these days you know all of these you know teeny boppers to you know old folk um you know they can they know what's authentic and what who's being unapologetically themselves and i think that's really what is is the difference between a lot of the artists that even i deal with or just in general is you know where where are you at in your career um when you when you were starting when we're talking about this era here how are you generating income? When I first started, yeah. When I first started, it was it was all live. It was all it was all touring. Um, you know, even to this day with electronic artists, and I, and this is me just always saying this. Unless you're, you know, a, a a mainstream commercialized type electronic artist, and your songs are going top forty or on the dance radio, and you're making your money that way, I look at a lot of these records as promo, as promo to get you you know, noticed in other, in other countries and other cities. Um, but all of the money is coming from touring brand partnerships as you get, you know, as you get bigger, um, synchronizations are always nice. You know, it doesn't really matter how big of an artist you are there. You know, if, if a song fits in, in a, in a commercial and in, in an episode of TV or a movie, you know, that pays super well at the time though, it was, it was strictly touring. And even then it was a grind because when you're building an artist from the, from the ground up, their fees aren't starting out super high. You know, mm -hmm. the nice thing on with electronic artists though, is that you're, you know, there's really no overhead costs. You know, you're flying from city to city with the USB stick, you know, versus flying from city to city with a, you know, four or five piece band, their luggage, hotel rooms, everything. Um, right. So, yeah, but even to this day in general, just live touring, I think is a big component in, in anyone's revenue model. Yeah, of course we've we've uh, been saying that for a while. So it's a switch from twenty, thirty years ago, where you toured to support an album. Mm -hmm. Now you're putting out a a song to support tours, of course. Mm -hmm. um, I I have this one uh, artist who who I manage. Josh names Tima likes music, and her uh, uh, see our uh, agency is Wasserman, and okay. we're doing we're going to do a fall tour. Um, leaving from, uh, you know, going to Atlanta and then Asheville, which I think is South Carolina, and then Charlotte and Raleigh and make our way north back to Washington, D.C. And then that might end up continuing into the Northeast. And I was putting together kind of like you, I'm, I'm like looking really hard at the money and the, the data and the, you know, at the cost of every little thing. And the goal for this tour, it's the first sort of, it will be the first sort of like longish tour that she's done. 
uh, the goal is to break even. It's not to make money. It's can we not lose money? Because you look around now, uh, there have been a lot of tours um, over the last, we'll call it six months or maybe coming out of COVID that have had to stop, that have been canceled. And the artists generally will go out and, and state, you know, there are production difficulties or whatever. But a lot of times it's just, it's too expensive, whether it's gas, whether it's lodging. We have a six piece band when we go with this artist. So it's harder to break even, but uh, it's looking for maybe that strategy of those um, certain gigs where you know you're going to pay, make enough money that that'll pay for the two or three gigs that are not going to make money. Um, but you want to hit those cities because you want to start building a presence there to build it out. You mentioned getting followers. That's the same thing. You know, how can we get more followers? And you could do the content strategy um, consistently. But then if you can go live and you can get out there at CISP, again, we get back to the chemistry set of adding more things in there. And is that what you're looking to do? Yeah, to, yeah. For, for, for any artist, I mean, anything that we can do to help gain fans in these cities that we're that we're going to um you know like specifically we did a a two-day or three-day tour with one of our artists in similar cities that you just mentioned mm -hmm. um but like when we like to do we like to keep them as regional as possible you know to are they fly dates you know do we need to you know check all the baggage do we need to you know are is there insurance involved but when we go to all like drive dates we like to do anything we possibly can when we get to each city to promote the shows. I mean, bootstrap guerrilla marketing. I'll walk, I'll sit out in front of the venue and people that pass by and say, what are you doing tonight? You should come in here. Uh, so anything that we can do to really, you know, add into that chemistry cup of, you know, when we're touring, we will do. That's what I was going to ask. And that was the EDM scene is basically clubs i assume when you're touring for the most part you know you, you've got club runs um you have you know you have hard ticket rooms you have soft ticket rooms hard ticket rooms are rooms where you need to come and you need to sell those tickets um you're either bringing in production or it could be there for you but you know these are open open rooms where they're coming for you soft ticket rooms are you know a little bit more clubbier they have built-in crowds Everyone's coming there Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Um, but to really fill it up, that's where your brand, you know, your you add the value and um, you start moving. They're a little bit, you know, um, what do I say? Softer ticket rooms are a little bit more less on the um, losing my train of thought too. But it's not as difficult to to do those rooms versus hard ticket. There's a little bit more pressure to do hard ticket rooms. Right. Explain, explain the difference between soft and hard ticket for people who don't know what you mean. So soft ticket, you you know, just for, say, for example, you're going to New York and you're going to like a, a night like Marquee, let's call it, you know, people are always going to, you know, go to Marquee. Great club. Um, tourists from, you know, that are coming to the city are going to go check it out. You know, they're always going to have a crowd. There are then hard ticket rooms, um, like more ballroom or more, you know, amphitheater or rooms that you need to bring the production, you need to bring you know, your fans, you need to sell those tickets, you know, the, the, the promotion, the promoter's not really, you know, it's not built in. So every ticket that you're selling is strictly coming from your music in you as a, as an artist. Mm -hmm. And what's the uh, revenue stream difference? Um, 
you can do, you know, there's front end deals and then there are back end deals, mm-hmm. you know, so depending on the size of artist and like, you know, your tour history and your ticket history in certain markets, you know, you can have more on the front end with less on the back end, which is more of a softer play. Um, and then if you're selling hard tickets, you're kind of taking that risk um, along with the promoter. And you're saying, look, like I'm going to bring this many people. Don't give me as much money on the back end. Let's split profits on. I mean, don't give me as much money on the front end. Let's split split profits on the back end. And that and there's so many different versions of that. And that's not even, you know, and I've learned so much through all the agents I've worked with over the years at UTA, CAA, William Morris, the Gongware group, you name it. Like I like to soak in every, you know, I'm not I'll never sit in front of anyone and say, I know everything I'm learning every single day as is, as is everybody. Cause the music business is constantly changing. Um, yeah. So primarily you set up a record company to um, promote live shows to do, to have music released. So that you could promote live shows. You think um, we get, and Dave still gets it. Of course, students that leave here with a degree and they either want to start their own record label or they try to work at the big three or whatever. You think that's a wise decision in terms of um, starting out, in terms of trying to put together your own label and and, um, and you can chew? <laughs> I'm all about being a hustler. I'm all about having a side hustle. I'm all about learning, you know, and you, you'll never know until you start. I, I may say it, it would be a little bit difficult to start that out of college and that's your full-time gig if you don't know what you're doing. Um, but I definitely think it's something cool to do to like learn. Like I was saying in 2017, when I, I launched like an imprint and I only have 13 records on the imprint, but I did it to learn, you know, I, I want, I did it for the betterment of the artists that I was managing at the time. And it was, it was super helpful for anyone coming straight out of college. Um, I don't know if it's the first thing that I would do. I think that I would dive into, like, if I wanted to start a label right out of college, I'd maybe get a job at a distribution company to learn how to do that first. Um, you know, maybe that's going to, um, you know, a major label. I, I would probably, if, you know, you want to soak up a little bit more and you wanted to get that label off the ground, I think a distribution job would be pretty cool, you know, mm-hmm. just to learn, learn the ins and the outs. Right. I would, I would also agree with what you're just saying, because to start a label now, um, it's almost like, what's the point unless you have, uh, connections with radio or you have money that you can give in advance, because anybody can get distribution. In the old days, you wanted a label so that you could get distribution, so you could get your record in the stores. Or uh, and and now it's anybody can get their music anywhere. It's just sign up for DistroKid and and you're done. But uh, if if you want uh, to get your music on the radio, if you want to get maybe brand promotions, do some of these other things. That's where maybe a label comes in because you have you've had JVs with the Orchard. So what is the Orchard? Explain what the Orchard is in the ecosystem of the music industry and what does the orchard do for your indie label so back in 2017 one of their jvs was um called black 17 and they just helped you know it's, it's a different it's the different percentage of you know whether you just need distribution or if you need label services that come along with the distribution um at the time i really just had distribution with them but fast forward, I'm working with them again, and they're unbelievable partners. First off, I want to say that um, Sony's The Orchard is an amazing company owned by Sony. Um, they offer distribution up to you know so many different label services. 
Um, so they work with one of our one of our artists, and not only do they distribute, but we have marketing teams, we have um, streaming services departments, we have project managers. They really have rolled out the red carpet and have been such amazing partners for us specifically. Where you know we kind of come in as this smaller production company, like independent label, which is called the Thirteenth, primarily based in Nashville right now, um, and they come in and they just you know, they just add a lot of value. You know, they they take what we're doing and they amplify it. Really, that's you know, that's that's what they're there for. And that's what the majors are there for too. You know, at the end of the day, you know, whether you're an independent label or whether you're a management company coming in with an artist, you know, you're the ones that are hands-on every single day. And obviously you want to get a good label partner um, in any capacity, whether that's, you know, distribution label services or, you know, um, you know, going up to a major label, um, you just want people that are going to be able to work well with you and see the same vision. You know, that's the biggest thing too, is, is it all comes down to the music. You know, people have to really enjoy the music to want to work on it. And it's the same thing as being a fan all around. If people need to like the music to feel like they're part of it. Yeah. So how many acts do you have now? Right now, um, on the label, we have one. Um, on the publishing venture with Warner Chapel, we are on to almost our fourth writer um, slash producer. And on the management side, between all different electronic and country, we're sitting at around six. Mm -hmm. So definitely been growing. You know, when we first started this, like pre-pandemic, you know, it's all started with one person. And then... From there, it just kept growing and growing and growing, and um, I'm proud to say that we we just hired our first our first person to come in and and help you know steer the ship with us. So, how did the Warner Chapel thing come about? So, my business partner Andrew Har Drew Brett, he is one half of a prolific production duo called The Runners. Um, one of their their big hits is "Hustlin" by Rick Ross. So we met in when i was at another management company in los angeles and we kind of just hit it off i was managing their electronic project at the time they basically were like we've we've you know we've done pop we've done hip-hop we've done country you know let's figure out this electronic thing since it was you know really you know had that move it still has that movement um so we met there we worked really well together Fast forward a little bit, I was leaving the company I was at, and then Drew and I just continued working together. He had come from the publishing world. After they really had a lot of hits with the Runners, they started a publishing venture called Numbers Don't Lie, which was only admin by Warner Chapel at the time. Um, you know, there was no joint venture or anything. So I think it was like 2018, 2019, um, he sold the catalog to Warner Chapel. And then fast forward a little bit longer, you know, him and I are working together and I stumbled across two writers and without Drew, I wouldn't know what to, what to do with them. You know, that publishing was not my world. You know, I would have figured it out, but it was not my world. And um, one of his good friends is Ryan Press, who's president of all North America and brought it over to him. And he's like, these are outstanding, you know, and then from there, you know, instead of having an admin deal, we decided to bring the publishing brand numbers don't lie back. And at this time as a joint venture um, and they've been unbelievable partners as well. You know, I'm, I can keep saying, I'm just super grateful to be in the position that I am now to continuing to 
you know, be a good person and continuing to help all these artists, you know, in their careers. Because one of the writers that we had was uh, doing social media, like verifications, you know, when, when we first started working together, you know, and all it took was one email that I decided to answer, you know, because I, I feel like there's 24 hours in a day, all of these, you know, all these unsolicited emails come in. I remember when I was younger and like, I would do the same thing. And I was like, I wish that people would answer me. And that's one thing to this day that I will I'll always do. Doesn't matter who you are, even if it's someone that I don't think we can work with at the time, I'll say reach back out in a few months or in a year or something like that. So it was the same thing with this writer. Um, we she was like, Oh, I heard you're a manager. So she sent me over some some demos. I could not stop playing them, you know. Like I was just like, the writing's phenomenal. She one of the records she actually sent, I gave to one of the electronic artists that we represent, and it's his best record. I mean, it's sitting at 20 million streams right now on Spotify you know, mid pandemic, it just was going crazy. So she's super diverse. And then ever since then, you know, it, we've just, we've dove right back into publishing, but that's a whole nother world, a whole nother world that's so different than it was. Uh -huh. uh, let's talk about publishing for a second. Two things you, you talked about, um, you, you were talking about admin deals, and then you talked about a joint venture. So talk about, because I'm sure there are people who are going to be listening to this and they they've heard of that maybe, but they have no idea what it is. Can you explain what an admin deal is and what a joint and how that instead turned into a joint venture? Um, so an admin deal, and I and I haven't done one. You know, I'm just from from all of my experience and what I've been doing now. An admin deal is really just collecting on on that specific company's behalf and those writers and producers, whatever royalties are coming in, um, you know, through their PROs through. The Harry Fox through the sound exchanges, they're collecting it. That's it. Um, in a JV, there are equal partners. You know, they're coming in, helping us put the sessions together, um, putting the producers in rooms, um, really helping to get that specific writer or that artist that's also a writer within the, you know, within the publishing house, getting, you know, records moving. So it's kind of like the same thing with distribution and, and like then plus label services. You can look at it like that, where distribution is kind of like an admin and then the label services like the JV, where, you know, you're just getting you're just getting more um, you're adding more fuel to the fire. You're having you're more hands on deck. So in a distribution deal, the artist generally can still own the master recordings. The, yep. We'll call it the content, but it's really the music. JV deal uh, between Numbers Don't Lie and Warner Chapel. And you have an artist you sign, uh, I'm sorry, a songwriter you sign, who owns the songwriting? Is is this uh, a glorified admin deal for the songwriter or are you, is it sort of a co-publishing deal in which the songwriter owns part of the, all of the songwriting, part of the publishing side because they're two sides? Do you know, can you explain who owns what, in the, at least in the JV deal? I mean, every every deal will be different at the end of the day, how it's structured until things are signed. Um, but it's, it's all split amongst all partners. And in that same instance, like the songwriters are a partner just as much as, you know, Warner Chapel or any, you know, company like numbers don't lie. So it's just split at least, you know, what, what I do, it's split amongst everybody. Everyone's an equal partner. Um, at least on the Warner Chapel and our side, we're equal partners. And then the songwriter will retain the other 50%. Mm-hmm. So the songwriter zoning, the writer's share, but not the publishing share. Yeah. Okay. All right. Because I'm looking at it from the songwriter side and then because the, there are all these different sides. It's it's 
very industry. I was working with, uh, still work with an artist, and we almost had a co-publishing deal with a company uh, back in the spring. And it ultimately fell apart because what they were calling a co-publishing deal isn't a traditional co-publishing deal. It was really more of a just a regular publishing deal with some better terms. But there were some, with all these different publishing deals, owner there are ownership differentials in each one, who owns what, how much of each. And um, there were a lot of details that were not co-publishing and we were kept calling them out with our attorney. Um, they eventually got sick of us basically calling them right. out and trying to make the deal the way it should. Uh, Carl Guthrie is, was our attorney, Marconi, who's a good friend of ours. And um, they eventually just said, forget it. We, they were sick of it, um, which was, which worked out in our favor because it would have been a, not the uh, best deal for the artist in the long run. Right. You're going to say, I was going to ask, what do you see as the next um, sort of incubation in terms of what the way the business is going as a revenue consumer product? We started maybe about, oh, I don't know, even about five to 10 years ago, we started to add fashion to um, to one of the revenue streams when we were teaching that in in school. What do you think one of the next things? Just, just, just to that point, consumer products. Um, I think that these artists are, and I was saying this even years ago, so I'm glad I could finally say it on the record. Um, and wish it was two years ago because you see all of these artists and athletes and they're using and, and now college athletes, they have the NIL and the name and likeness and doing all these different things where, you know, I can name murder beats, the big, you know, hip hop producer just came out with psychedelic water, you know, um, and that's just off the top of my head. But a lot of these artists that are coming out with their own products, I think ASAP Rocky just came out with his own bourbon or whiskey. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's the biggest thing is using your, your name and your brand and everything that you've built to have more ownership. I think ownership is so important, um, especially when it's you're the one that's representing it. So whether that's a a liquor um, consumer product, you know, like you said, fashion, like a, a, a merchandise consumer product, um, a board game. I mean, it doesn't matter. Like Marshmallow, the electronic artist who's got a, a, a you know, um, a marshmallow on his head. He created Puffs, which is literally a marshmallow with chocolate or vanilla or like birthday cake on the inside. And they're delicious. Right. And, you know, if Marshmallow, then, you know, wants to stop touring, look at all these other businesses that you created. You know, I mean, so many artists, I even think laid down the blueprint to that. I mean, Jay-Z, you know, right. like the, all the other businesses that he's part of. So I, I think that's the biggest thing is consumer products strictly because of the ownership behind it. Yeah. Yeah. And the visibility, I think, too. It helps. It it all helps build, you know, build the brand. Yeah. Yeah. Cannabis is another, depending upon the artist. You know. Oh, for sure. Oh, I mean, we can dive in there. Um, you know, that's once it becomes federal across all states. I mean, that's just another another huge thing. Um, you know, Wiz Khalifa obviously cap, you know, um, really capitalizing on that. And I think that's becoming more and more um, okay in the public side, you know, to be part of that. Yeah. What's, in, what's interesting, I'm, I'm just thinking as you're saying this, every artist we're giving an example of is either an EDM artist or a hip hop artist. We're not talking about 
the rock artists necessarily. Um, some on the countryside, which you're you work with, have done restaurants and things. Like if you go right in Nashville, mm-hmm. uh, is it Jason Aldean has a restaurant? And everybody, yeah, yeah, a honky tonk. Uh, Jason Aldean, Justin Timberlake's, I think, a part owner of the Twelve Thirty Club, which is a favorite place of mine. Um, I mean, you know, you have Miranda Lambert's got a place now. Everyone, I think, Luke Combs has a place in the works. Dirk Bentley, you know, you, you name it. That's a really good example. I mean, anywhere in Nashville, you've got an artist name on it. Yeah, and we're always, I guess, on the on the uh, traditional rock side, you know. Um, I'm trying to think. There aren't a whole lot of you know mainstream rock acts right now to that I can even mention uh, that are big enough, you know, to to do the brand deal yeah. the way Diddy can or Rihanna can or you know Marshmallow or Travis Scott. Yeah, I think it's. I think it has become a sort of a genre specific too thing where hip hop and country seem to be leading. Country was always there. I mean, I remember going to Nashville fifty years ago and uh, seeing the George Jones store with all his um, swag and all his stuff. I mean, just the size of a. Of a of a CVS. I mean, not it's not a little tiny store. I mean, they've been doing it for ever down there. But I think um, hip hop has started. I think in the fashion and the culture mm-hmm. industry, and then just started to explode as um, they move to anything uh, athletic oriented or or so on. So it's sure it's still. I think. Dodge City out there still wide open, but you're right, Dave. I mean, I just I would just went to Springsteen concert mm. Friday night, and um, I was a little appalled, although my daughter wasn't when I got back, that uh, Springsteen didn't have a short sleeve shirt, t shirt under fifty bucks, and I thought, that's ah, it. Come on, you know, thirty five, maybe forty. I couldn't believe that it was. That's it. And my sister, my um, daughter went to. Um, Five seconds of summer, they played the the garden and she got free tickets, actually. She came back with a $50 t-shirt. So I said, all right, I guess that's the <laughs> that's the price now. That's the retail. That's on. when you can justify it. You get a free ticket and you put you use the tickets money on on the merch. Yeah, and she bought a friend who got a bit of ticket, one, two, so she spent a hundred on it. But yes, I mean, you know, Springsteen was um it was huge because Springsteen, it's eight to 80, go to his shows, you know? So you're not dealing with a little segment here. Yeah. You're dealing with, uh, the, on the, the, you know, the big cam seeing even the 60 year old women with their t-shirts and, and so on. Uh, and that's, you're right. I mean, I think we still want to belong to something that we believe in. And years ago I stopped, advertising for nike i didn't believe i needed to buy a t-shirt that said nike and advertise for them unless it was a discount which it wasn't of course so yeah so dave anything want to add uh no we actually should uh one final thing to add one final question for josh in terms of publishing and uh it's probably a relatively quick answer but um since you you know you're working with a company that has the uh, JV with Warner Chapel, Beyonce, she has a song called "Summer Renaissance" that came off of her last record last year, 
And it has a sample of a Donna Summer song, which Donna Summer and her then uh, writing partner, Giorgio Moroder, did. So on this song, Summer Renaissance, um, Beyonce is a co-writer, as is uh, Donna Summer and Giorgio Moroder. And then there are 14 other people. There's 17 total writers on this song. It does have 89 million streams. So my question to you, Josh, are all 17 of these people millionaires because their song had 89 million streams? Uh, far from that. <laughs> I mean, even if you broke it down and, and did the math, 89 million on Spotify alone times 0. 0.004 cents to the dollar that you're getting on that, mm -hmm. then divided by all of those writers thinking that they all got equal splits. Beyonce's on that. You know that she came in and took her share regardless mm -hmm. and then everything else is is broken down and then all of the different you know whatever the deal structures are but far from it and it's really sad to say that and I, and I really feel for songwriters especially working in Nashville for the last three years and and loving music so much because of what the messages are behind the songs I, I feel for them and I, and I hope that things can change um, but yeah no one's a millionaire on that besides Beyonce and Giorgio Moroder and Donna Summer yeah, I mean, I speak for the others, but those three are. Yeah, I, I just wanted to bring that up because a lot of people uh, listening think if they all I need is that one huge hit, and and I'm made even as a songwriter, and you're not, and that and that it's a shame, but it's true. Well, well don't we, you know we, we used to um, when we started talking about splits in class. That's uh, one of the things we would talk about how. Madonna didn't get any money for spins uh, or streams or whatever because she was just a performer. So now you give a tune and Madonna loves and Madonna comes in and says she's going to take 95% of the writing. And we used to ask the class, so you're going to give it to her or not? And then we talked about 100% of nothing equals nothing. Mm -hmm. So you have to, this is a business of fragmentation. But as you said, of course, um, we're very close with um, who was a, a grad of ours, uh, Rob Fasari, who was a fabulous producer and, and writer, and of course, supposedly, but he brought Lady Gaga to the forefront, of course, and he talks about um, doing a, a record with Beyonce and writing the entire record, and then the Beyonce's people come in and tell him how much he's going to get. Uh, and he wasn't a dummy at that time. He was, he already had no, no, no. And he had uh, delicious. I mean, so it doesn't change, as he said, no matter how high, how big you get. If somebody's bigger, then the the piece of the pie goes yeah. outside yeah. your hand. For a lot of the writers that we have now, I know we don't have much more time, but, you know, all it takes is one moment. So even on a record where you may be the 15th writer, you know, you, you never know who's looking at the song credits. And then all it takes is that one for them to come back to you. And then you've got 80 other records that no one would have paid attention to because they didn't know who you were as a writer to right. now see your name and all of the records can fly. Right. Uh, and that's just the music business for you. But, you know, we tell all of our writers, our artists, anyone, keep your head down, stay focused, put the blinders on, only focus on yourself. We keep our team circle really close and tight. We don't want bad apples coming in. You know, we really, 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 you know, stand behind true talent and make sure that our artists know that they have a strong team behind them and that, you know, just to 
keep pushing. You know, why, why would we keep doing this if, if we weren't dreamers, you know, and didn't think that we had the talent to, to succeed in it. Mm -hmm. Well, Josh, you have the talent to succeed in it and you're doing it. And we appreciate you for succeeding in having a great interview on music. Biz, yeah. 101 and more. I appreciate it guys. Thanks. And he's got a very good uh, short game. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I got to keep practicing though. We got to get back out on the course. Yeah, I'll call it, well, we take the recording off. We'll take the recording off as we say adios. So, Josh, what do we say at the end of every, what would you guess that we say at the end of every interview with every guest that we've ever done in the history of Music Biz 101 and more? What would you say? Um, stay humble, stay true. <laughs> no, um, that's, that would be far too cool. Instead, we say adios. Adios. Wanna be your lover in every sexy kind of way. Commit to this addiction and spend the day. Couldn't if I wanted turn around and walk away. Sick of this addiction, hear me say. Couldn't have